Welcome to The Mortification of Spin, your regular podcast with your hosts, Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Hello, I'm Aaron Marino from Alpha M Image Consulting, and today we're talking about skinny jeans. I really love these skinny jeans. Okay, where are my skinny jeans? Guys, um, I can't, I can't find my skinny jeans. Have you seen them anywhere? And now moving on to the skinny jeans. These are a bright blue pair of skinny jeans. I look so good. Skinny jeans. If you think that skinny jeans are not just a fashion statement, but also a mission statement, you need to switch off right now. This is not the podcast for you, brother. Uh, Todd. Yes. want to talk today about a fascinating book. came out maybe six, eight months ago. It's been widely reviewed in the Christian blogosphere. It's made the lady who wrote it something of a, of a celebrity in a good sense mm -hmm. in the Christian and Reformed world. Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, written by a lady called Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. For those of you not familiar with this book, uh, this is the, the testimony, the conversion testimony of Dr. Butterfield, who prior to her conversion was a, an English literature professor specializing in queer theory at Syracuse University, and she was a committed lesbian in a lesbian relationship. And this is the story of how a humble, unknown pastor in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of uh, the United States uh, reached out to her in a non-polemical and loving way, engaged her as a friend, had her around to his house for meals, uh, got to know her, and over a, a period of time, one might say, earned the right to speak the gospel to her. And the story is, is very moving. Uh, many aspects of it are very instructive. What was particularly striking to me, I think, was the, the way there is no sentimentality in this story, mm -hmm. that her life, her career is effectively destroyed from a human right. perspective by her conversion. Uh, would you agree with that, yeah, Todd? What, yeah. what were your thoughts as you read the book? Yeah, well, for me, it's it's the book of the year. It's uh, it's my favorite book that I read this year. I, I read it upon your recommendation. I don't think I would have ever seen it. I don't think a lot of people would have ever seen it, Carl, until you 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 blurbed it on on the blog and and because you are a man of influence, as we know. I make people and I break people. Too, <laughs> that's right. You know that. That's so. right. <laughs> well, you you were, well. What I found interesting about your review of that book is because you're a Brit, you're very unsentimental and, and cold-hearted. Let's face it. I mean, it's true, Carl. Flattery and, will get you everywhere. <laughs> that's so. right. But you wrote this glowing review and even at the end said, every Christian needs to read this book. Well, when Carl Truman says something, this gushing about something, I mean, I, I got online, I ordered it that day, and honestly, I could not put the thing down. I read it deliberately slowly because it was so moving. But the, but one of the things for me also as a pastor, not only was it just deeply moving to listen to this woman's story of, of conversion, and it's a radical conversion, I was also moved by how unsensational it was. She is very careful about how she writes about her past. Um, while dealing directly with sin, it, it's never sensational. It's, it, it, it's never self-aggrandizing. And, and one of the bits that, that moved me so much as a pastor was it is, in a way, an antidote for the sensationalism that so infects modern evangelical life. Uh, here you have a woman who, as you've already said, was converted through the very ordinary means that God has supplied to his church for the conversion of sinners. The faithful proclamation of the gospel, uh, the loving care of God's people for the stranger who comes in. There's really nothing more than that. Here is a woman who, by God's grace, 
uh, began to hear the word of God regularly and by God's grace was fortunate enough to cross paths with a pastor and his wife who just loved her. And as a pastor that was moving to me, because so much of the literature that we read as pastors, if we're going to change the world, I'm, I'm, do, I'm writing a book review right now on a, on a book on church leadership, and, and there is so much pressure page after page in that book about how we've got to change the world, change the world, change the world. And on every other page, there's another acrostic to memorize if we're going to do that. And this book is such a beautiful antidote to that high pressure, change the world or you're a failure kind of approach where what we're called to do is to be faithful to the powerful gospel that the Lord has given to us and to love sinners and that it changes the world for those that we encounter. And um, I, I just cannot recommend the book highly enough simply for a, a believer to read and be encouraged by, but also for pastors and ministry leaders to read and be challenged by and perhaps corrected in their thinking about what is the best way to reach out to people like Miss Butterfield, who is as secularized a person as you'll encounter. Yeah, very remarkable story on that front. And as I say, very encouraging for those who, you know, whose churches don't have the budgets to right. engage in, in fancy programs. This right. was a pastor who opened his home to somebody that most Christians, let's face it, would right. despise precisely because of who she was and what she stood for. And merely opening his home, sharing food with her, right. getting to know her and her friends. And she makes a point that one of the things she appreciated was when her friends and, and herself went to this pastor's house, he never tried to ram the gospel down her throat. Right. He allowed the friendship to develop. He gave an, an account of of the reason for his belief mm -hmm. when necessary, but it was at no point uh, a confrontational or an aggressive thing. He just slowly but surely, we might say, wooed her into, right. into the kingdom. Right. The other striking thing about the book, and this, I think, derives from her professional background, is that she has a fairly sophisticated uh, and well-thought-out understanding of sexuality. Right. I was very struck reading this book, comparing it with you know, Bob Brady and the lawyers aren't here today, so I'm, I'm able to, to name names at this point and exert my First Amendment rights that even as a green card, I think I right. have under the American we, Constitution. We will, we will allow it. Yeah, you're probably exerting your Second Amendment rights, which is a slightly worrying thing I, to me. I'm packing heat right British now. Person, yes, that's right. Uh, uh, one of the things that, that, that struck me was what a difference this was. Uh, to the book by Mark Driscoll, Confessions of a yes. Reformational Rev. There is a, a section in that where I think he's phoned up late at night by one of his uh, congregants who's watched a pornographic movie. And Driscoll's response, uh, you know, on one level, I suspect he's only responding in the way that most pastors in this country would think of responding <laughs> at 2 a.m. in the morning, called mm -hmm. by somebody with that sort of problem. Driscoll's uh, advice was, you know, Go out, find yourself a wife, get naked with her, have sex with her, problem over. Right. When I read that, I, I laughed the first time I right. read it precisely because I thought, yeah, I can understand that's just how you'd feel if you were woken <laughs> up at two in the morning by some, you know, some guy who's just watched a pornographic right. movie. Uh, but Rosaria Butterfield makes the point that the problem with sex is ultimately not, one might say, just the biological need. Right. It's not that uh, pornography satisfies precisely the same need as a mere sexual urge. It's not that pornography is doing for a man something that his wife 
can do for him as an alternative. There are deep and complicated idolatries involved in, in sexual sin in that way that go beneath the sexual sin. The sexual sin is merely a manifestation of that. Right. And I felt that the, the book was in a very tactful way. There was none of the, the schoolboy smuts one associates with right. the kind of characters that I've just mentioned. Mm-hmm. There was none of the, the cheap laughs, if you like. It was a very uh, modest and appropriate analysis of sexual sin, which yet brought out the complexity of the psychology, that the answer uh, to the masturbator, the answer to the lesbian or the gay man is not simply to find some legitimate Mm -hmm. outlet for that physical need. There's actually something much more deeper, more psychological going on here. Yeah, and, and, and I appreciated that because she gets into the depth of our brokenness, which Again, there's there's a reverence in her writing as she approach as she approaches the, the reality of sexual sin. There's a reverence there that understands this is not just about finding the appropriate outlet for sex. That there is a a depth to our brokenness that we have to understand. And in that, she does a great service to those Christians who know homosexuals how to speak into their life, how to hear them, um, how to reach into their lives with the gospel. And in that sense, the book transcends just a memoir or a story of a conversion into something that's very helpful for churches. Uh, how do we approach these radically secularized people? It doesn't get much more secular in the West than a, a, a professor of queer studies um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a university setting. She was as secular as it gets and, and, and hostile towards what you would think a Christian stands for. And yet, what wins her but the uh, faithful preaching of the gospel and the tender love of a pastor and his wife. Um, I, I think we can receive much wisdom in how we do evangelism to radically secular people from this book. And, and in a way, it's almost as if the pressure is off. You read that book simultaneously with another book that is page after page beating you up for not changing the world. And the contrast is, is very, very clear and, and stark. You can't accept Gatom. Can't escape it. So you can either waste your life hating these people, or you can just open up and get used to it and be like, wow, they don't really affect my life at all. What's going to happen if gays can marry? Guess what? Gays can get married. And that's going to be it. Because I really don't like you. And yeah. Yeah, it's a very, very good points. And I think in the, the way that culture in the West is moving, where the, the gay issue or issues of sexuality, we can, I don't think we can even combine it, just, confine it just to the gay issue anymore, mm-hmm. but issues of sexuality in general are becoming such hot-button social topics. Yes. The rhetoric is becoming so heated. And frankly, there is persecution at some level coming to faithful churches right. on this, whether it'll just be the loss of tax allowances, or whether it could be something more severe. Who knows? But there is going to be some discomfort coming for Christians who hold firm on this one. The temptation for the church is going to be to respond in kind, to get the flamethrowers out, to chain ourselves to the railings, to start screaming and shouting that we're not getting our way on legislation. I think the lesson of this book is that is not the biblical way. Right. Paul is always talking about turning away wrath with a kind word. Um, yes, Paul can be very polemical within the church, right. 
But in terms of engaging with the outside world, the, the issue for Paul, I think, of, of outreach is, is articulated in a much more subtle and complicated way. Right. And this book speaks to that. Yes, we've got to be pretty tough and hard on mm-hmm. on our own people, if you like. Right. But when it comes to, to witnessing to those outside the church, we don't sit in judgment on those outside the church. Right. We judge those in the church. Right. We have to reach out with the gospel to those outside mm-hmm. the church in a firm and clear exactly. way. Well, and compare the, 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 the pattern of speech that Paul has, for instance, in the Areopagus when he's speaking to uh, pagan philosophers uh, compared to the way he writes to the Galatian church. Um, he's direct, he's clear at the Areopagus, but he's not polemical in the sense that he is to the Galatians, to going to the extent of, of writing some things that would make any pastor blush in our day to say to his church. Um, but yet when the gospel was at stake, Paul became <laughs> beyond direct into what I think would be considered in our day uh, offensive. The other aspect I've alluded to of the book uh, that's interesting is the, is the total chaos that the conversion right. injects into her life. She's, she's really converted just before she's going to give some big welcoming lecture to students. And of course, the lecture she gives is very different to the one that her right. colleagues expected her to give. She has a line of former friends outside her office right. uh, coming to dump on her mm-hmm. after she's given uh, this mm-hmm. speech. And it reminded me of how often... Christian conversion is articulated in the sense of, you know, you're converted and your life just gets a whole lot better. It's the way to solve your marital problems. Well, you know, if you're married to a non-Christian and you're converted, you may actually find your marriage problems massively increase at that point. Reminded me of uh, the conversion of the man with the demon in Mark Mm. chapter 5. It's always fascinated me that here you've got this guy. He lives in the tombs. He's unclean. He's a crazy person. They can't bind him with chains. Presumably, you'd have been terrified that your children were out playing if this guy was running around. Christ comes along and he converts. You know, this right. man is, if you like, converted. He's cleansed. At the end, he's sitting clothed and in his right mind. And what do the people say to Christ? Get away from here. Right. Get out of the place. Even though one might say, surely their properties will have increased in value now that this antisocial element in the neighborhood has been dealt with. There is something deeply disturbing to these people about the advent of the kingdom, if you like, at Mm -hmm. that point. I would say in Rosaria Butterfield's life, the coming of Christ into her life shatters her life, uh, devastates it. She writes of how students were coming to her in tears uh, because now their world was turned upside down because the person that they were looking to sort of in the direction of true north had now turned upside down. Yeah, betrayed them, a traitor exactly. to the cause. Uh, a Benedict Arnold, as you right. would say. The, right. Of course, for me, he's something <laughs> of a, a national hero. But, uh, right, right. Yeah. Well, so, so is Keith, uh, Keith Richards, so, but you know, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Keith Richards' national trend, of course. But the, yeah, the comp- I think her phrase is a comprehensive chaos. Right. And it really does bring out the dramatic impact of Christian conversion. Mm-hmm. And that brings me to, to one part of her book that a number of people I've recommended the book to have said to me, I, you know, I was tracking with her throughout the whole book mm-hmm. until this point, mm-hmm. and I couldn't understand why she put this in. Rosaria Butterfield, of course, is converted into the RPCNA, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, that holds very closely to the Reformation regulative principle and therefore only sings 
and sings unaccompanied yes. the metrical psalms in worship. Oh Lord, God Almighty, God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. And at the end of the, the book, she has this pitch for exclusive psalmody. And a number of, even a lady in my own church said, oh, I felt that kind of undermine the book for me as an outreach tool. I actually think that's a very important part of the book. I agree. Because that shows just how total this lady's conversion has been. She's not been converted 80%. Right where she still looks a bit like a trendy university professor, <laughs> right. but she now goes to church. Right. The move from way out lesbian queer theorist mm-hmm. to homeschooling wife of RPCNA right. pastor who's only prepared to sing unaccompanied psalms, <laughs> that, it doesn't come any much more dramatic right. than that. And I actually think... And she's a literary professor. I'm sure she's going. To, I think that's a great literary device, mm. as well as an accurate description uh, of of her conversion, because it brings out the totality of it. This is Mark Five. This is the man who was tearing chains right. and was a wild man, now sitting clothed and in his right mind. Right. Everything has changed. Yeah, and 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 again, what strikes me about that is, as we think about denominations, the Reformed Presbyterian Church. Is, is not known uh, for being on the cutting edge of seeker sensitivity. I like them because they make the OPC look huge and influential. <laughs> That's right, Carl. They, and they and will, relatively trendy. Right, they will make say. your denomination look like you, you all are on the cutting edge. There's no doubt about it. Um, I think Acts 29 is going to be knocking on your door. I love get, hanging out with those get, guys. Oh, I look yeah. like a megachurch pastor. Ab- absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But it, it's true. I, I was... I was challenged to think in some really healthy ways about the necessity of distinctives. And oftentimes in an evangelical culture that seeks to minimize distinctives, here she is saying at some point, almost at some point you have to admit what you are and to be thankful for that. And she is a part of a faith community that takes what they sing very, very seriously. And it's in her book, I think, deliberately on her part, and I think thoughtfully on her part. I, 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 was, I heard a conversation one time, somebody was asked if, if, if there will be denominations in heaven. The answer was, no, probably not, but we need them while we're here. Yeah. We'll all be OPC in heaven. <laughs> Everything becomes OPC <laughs> in heaven. Yeah, well, I think that's clear. I think everybody listening would agree with that. But, but I... I I was moved by this underlying current of, of the necessity of these sorts of distinctives. And, and again, that she was, that, that someone who could be uber cool and, and at a place like Syracuse University to be a department chairman, lecturer in, in queer theory, that's uber cool. And to be converted in a church that is on the opposite end of that spectrum. Um, I think, I don't know everything that it says to us, but I think one thing it says to us in the evangelical church, particularly, see, I'm, an, I'm a different tribe than you, Carl. I'm, 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 for the last four years, been pastoring a church that is non-denominational. And I, I, think, I think this book raises some challenging questions for the whole project 
of, shall we call it, broad evangelicalism. I think, I think at least in my mind as I read it, I, I thought of a number of challenging questions for people in my um, context uh, of, of broad evangelicalism. And at, and at some point later on another program, I've got a very specific question for you about something you've written um, that I want to pick your brain on a little bit. But um, I, I say all that to say, I hope pastors will read this book. I hope pastors will have their staff, associate pastors, ministry leaders, read this book in part with an eye towards what does it tell us about loving lost people, about the effectiveness, the power of faithful preaching of the gospel, and what our methods mean in light of what God has actually given us in his ordinary means. Yeah, this is, to, to anyone listening out there, I would say this is one of the most important books I've certainly read in the last decade, I yeah. would say. I think it's unique. It's unique because the author is unique. She's yeah. a unique background. She's uniquely talented in her field and as a writer, and she brings out some unique insights that, as Todd said, are very important, I think, for, for all churches to reflect on, even if you disagree with her stand on, say, homeschooling or uh, exclusive psalmody. Right. I think that is, well, I often say to students at Westminster, sometimes it's worth reading a book to see a great mind in action. And I mm. think this lady has a great mind and a sanctified mind. Right. And that makes the book uh, extremely important. So, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. There is much more to it than Todd and I have been able to, to cover today, but I would certainly impress upon everybody out there, get this book, read it, give it away. I do book giveaways each month at my church. I bought a heap of this book. Mm -hmm. I had to go and buy more because I had people coming up to yeah. me and saying, I want to read the book. Can you right. get it for me? It really is uh, an absolute gem. Absolutely. Here, here. Well, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mortification of Spin. A word of advice for the day. If you have somebody in your pulpit who uses the word journey to refer to something other than a geographical movement between points A and point B on a map, fire him. This has been the Mortification of Spin, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Please uh, visit our website, support the ministry. Look forward to being with you next time. Thanks very much. Yes, indeed.